Blog Talk Radio. This is Great to Lean Play. I'm Steve Dahlberg. And I'm Mary Alice Long. Find us online and be notified of future shows at creativityandplay.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Creativity Play and download archived editions on iTunes. Our guest today on Creativity and Play is Randy Dixon, Artistic Director of the Seattle-based improv theater Unexpected Productions. Randy has appeared in film, television, and on stage, and he is the founder of the international improvisation group Orcus Island Project. He is also the author of Being Present, Spontaneous Storytelling and the Art of Improvisation. Randy Dixon, welcome to Creativity and Play. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you to talk about improv, and I know several other things today, but it's uh, such a great connection to the overall theme of our show of Creativity and Play because the connection of, I know, what makes improv work is so much about what makes creative thinking in general work, and just if we could lead off with that, and what are some of those um, core things about improv, sort of the rules, if you will, that uh, mm-hmm. everybody sort of begins with, and, and how do they sort of expand out to beyond improv into the broader sense of creative thinking and, and helping us do that better? Right. Um, well, the basic rules of improv, uh, I mean, in all improvisation, whether it's uh, a short game going two, three minutes, or whether it's a hour and a half long single story narrative based show, all um, uh, all of those are game based. So they generally will have rules that the performers are pushing up against. And some of those basic rules are things like um, the most basic one is is called yes and. And the yes is agreeing with your scene partner or your story partner that something is in existence in the story. So somebody says, uh, is that your car? And you say, yes, we are both in agreement that there's a car in the scene. And then you take something from that yes agreement offer and build from there. And that's the and part. So it might be, is that your car? Yes. And we should go for a ride. So I'm reincorporating the, the car. And if everybody on stage is doing that, um, then we have sort of agreement uh, automatically, and then our story can move forward from there. Um, the other rules are things, uh, we have something we call crow, which is, or things that need to be established, a character that you're playing, a character that's in a relationship with somebody else, that's the R, the O is the objective, why are we watching these characters do this? And the where is the location. And so we try to clearly establish those four things as quickly as possible. Um, and then aside from that, the individual games have different purposes. Some of them are meant to, uh, the rules are designed to make you more spontaneous or they're to make you uh, trip up over yourself to allow sort of spontaneous content. Um, and, you know, we try to adapt to those rules and we invent games to try to trick ourselves into doing things we sometimes don't want to do on a regular basis, uh, especially when dealing with the, the spontaneous interaction, because most of our experience with spontaneity tends to be somewhat negative uh, in life. Um, so we're trying to create good experiences around that. So, Well, how does that, <clears throat> all that improvisation and those forms that you use in improvisational theater and just in general in life, it, how does improv help us to be more playful and creative in our lives? Um, well, when you're improvising, you're, um, you're being, you, you know, you're engaging in a spontaneous activity. And the thing about improvisation is it's an externalized 
uh, process. Your focus is thrown to your scene partners uh, who you're playing with rather than oftentimes in life we tend to have an inward focus. And so the rules of improvisation can really help us to uh, to get engaged in playful activity with uh, with other people. And then uh, uh, and that's how the rules of the game work. And usually the rules of the game apply to something that you are trying to get or do with another person, not necessarily just do it by yourself. Can you give us an example from um, the daily living, Randy? Uh, yeah, actually, I can. Hang on a second. Um, <laughs> sorry, getting loud for just a second. Um, okay. There's a game called the ABC game, which uh, each player begins uh, a sentence with the next letter of the alphabet. Um, and every sentence begins with the next letter of the alphabet. So if I say three sentences, the first sentence will be A, the second sentence will be B, the third sentence will be C, and then my scene partner will take over from there, uh, picking up with the letter D. So what is uh, what's that doing is it's forcing us to sort of listen, actively listen to each other because we need to hear what letter our scene partner stops on so that we know where to pick it up. And so, um, and when you're actively listening rather than a lot of times in improvisation, they think it's about creativity uh, in terms of making stuff up. It's about using what's already there uh, in a creative fashion. Um, so oftentimes when people are speaking lines of dialogue to each other, they're not, they're not actively listening to each other. They are sort of thinking up what their next line is going to be rather than listening to my partner and playing that yes hand uh, game that, or rule that I explained earlier. It's interesting that a lot of what you're describing of this, you know, the, the rules of improv that so much apply to how to sort of get out of the way of our judgments and the blocks and what you were just saying about thinking ahead to what next, you know, very much applies to helping us be better creative thinkers. And, and there seems to be a lot of criticism in the news these days about brainstorming and to a point that would tend to agree when it's not done well. And, and I think some of the, the disconnect is, is when these kind of rules that come out of improv but also apply to brainstorming or divergent thinking, um, you know, if we actually applied them well, like good, good improv, there wouldn't be such a problem with bad brainstorming. Right. Right. Well, there's, so, uh, I, you know, trying to address that in terms of the other rule of improv, which I think helps with brainstorming and uh, and being creative with each other, is this notion of being present, which is uh, uh, the name of my book. Um, and what you're trying to do is live in that moment and respond to that moment in a creative fashion. So rather than, again, kind of coming in with a, an agenda or trying to uh, leave the room for a minute to improve upon an idea, you're sort of dancing with each other uh, in the creative process. And if you can do that and stay in the moment, um, magical stuff happens. You can discover things together that, that you wouldn't have discovered by yourself. So re related to doing that kind of work, uh, brainstorming and, and kind of helping people tap into their imagination and creativity. I know you also do work with corporate audiences. Um, mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like and, and, you know, give an example of what you actually do with them and to what end? Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think there's so much pressure in the corporate environment to uh, to try to be original and try to be creative. And so at its most basic level uh, with the corporate work that I do, um, I try to base it in storytelling and try to base it in the stories uh, that are told within whatever the corporation is. So that might be company history, or that might be how they do business with uh, with their customers or clients, 
and try to craft a, a narrative around that that people will be able to understand because I'm a firm believer that we are at heart uh, storytellers. Um, and so if we can put these things into story form, then um, people get a better understanding of either the process or the theme or whatever it is that the you know the corporate workshop is about. Um, and they can get their arms around it a little bit better. And um, using the improvisation as a sort of distraction to um, the rules of the game as a distraction, the rules of the improv game as a distraction, to allow the content to sort of freely flow and then take that free-flowing narrative and then help shape that into a story. So it's much more about process. Uh, and in the corporate world, it's interesting because a lot of times you're, you're working in improv with process in a product-driven place. How do you get that the uh, <clears throat> corporations in, invested in playing with you, Randy? How do you get them there to begin with? <laughs> right, right. That's the tall order. Yeah, no, um, yeah it is. Yeah, it's, it's usually, uh, you know, you can engage, for instance, if I'm talking to a client about uh, a potential workshop or, or something, a session, um, oftentimes I will use some of those core story principles, you know, so I'll just say, uh, you know, we have a natural sense of story structure, you know, tell me what you did yesterday and they'll tell me a story and, you know, I'll sort of point out the different structural stuff and I say, this is common ground for everybody uh, who's working here. So if, for instance, I'm focusing on team building, um, you know, keeping it simple, uh, on team building, then uh, that's a, a way into that. So say, we all have a sort of basic tool that, that we use all the time, uh, but we're not necessarily pointing it out or using it in the corporate environment, but it's common ground for everyone to start, especially if you're trying to build a team. So that would be a, a for instance. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I mean another another example would be uh, I've done a lot of work with, especially com- companies that have been around a while, um, on the corporate story because oftentimes miscommunication and problems arise because everybody's operating from the sort of same sort of company myth um, or, or a different company myth. So somebody who came into the company two years ago isn't necessarily following the same story of a person that's been there for 20 years. And so you begin to sort of show these differences and begin to find common ground again in the company story. And oftentimes things will align. It seems like a lot of uh, corporations, or a number of them anyway, are are focusing or having workshops around meditation. And since your book is uh, focused on being in the present, that fits Mm -hmm. right into that motif, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, improvisation I kind of think of as an external form of meditation. So rather than sort of being this inward journey, uh, it's this external journey where you're trying to actually lose yourself to everything else um, so that, you know, you're not really thinking about what you're doing. You are following uh, other offers. Uh, Viola Spolin, who was one of the uh, godmothers of uh, improvisation, had this saying, follow the follower, where nobody is leading. Um, and so if you can get into that frame of mind where you're just going with it, right, uh, where your fellow player wants to take you, but also where the story wants to, to take you, you know. Um, I often say in classes, uh, and it's one of my favorite phrases, I say, you know, the story tells us. We don't tell the story uh, when we're improvising. If we're finding those offers and running with them, then the story will provide uh, what's necessary to, to move on, on to the next beat of the story. And, uh, you know, so what we're – you know, at our heart doing is trying to lose ourselves in that. 
um, rather than losing ourselves by going deeper and deeper within ourselves. Um, you know, and it's interesting. A couple of years ago, we had an international festival, and a couple of years ago, the scene was uh, Zen, and uh, and we had a, a Buddhist monk come in and teach meditation for a couple of days. Um, two improvisers from around the world, and just to see how they how it would impact their work or what kind of insights they could get um, through going through that process with uh, with someone who could take them uh, uh, through that process really well. And uh, and it was amazing. It was the, the work was changed in a way. I'm not sure if it stayed that way or if anybody got tools that they were then able to carry on. But for those few days, it was really interesting to, to watch, especially because they were performers that I was somewhat familiar with. So I was kind of new what they were up to and sort of see their work changed uh, simply by putting a, you know, a new lens on it uh, was really interesting. Sort of picking up on what you were just saying about the, uh, about telling the story. You also said in another interview, the, the audience comes to tell a story, not watch a story. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, an audience comes to, to, to tell a story, not to watch a story. They don't, want uh to be sort of told how to feel or uh or be you know beaten about uh you know uh, over complication and over explanation um you're dancing with the audience so for instance when you're reading a book a lot of that uh creative process in reading the book is what's going on in your imagination as you're looking at these words and translating those words into a visual image that works for you, and I think this is why, you know, when they turn your favorite book into a movie, it's often disappointing um, because it's not the same way that you saw it. And in improvisation, we're trying to engage the story that the audience wants to see, because if an audience sees the story that they want, they're going to be immensely satisfied. Um, and it also makes it easier in terms of the storytelling and the creative process because uh, there's more people to do the heavy lifting, right? If I'm on stage with a fellow improviser and we're not improvising well together, then we're, what we're doing is wrestling for the stage. So we're sort of fighting each other. And also, each one of us is trying to be 100% in control. If we are working together, right, now we've got two storytellers, and we're each uh, working with that, we haven't engaged the audience yet, then we're 50% of the story and two storytellers. But if there's, you know, 98 people in the audience and two improvisers, you get 100 storytellers. Uh, all moving that story forward, right? And again, if we're following the follower and being in the moment and taking those offers and losing ourselves in the story, the story is going to be something that is a product of those those hundred people. So I don't think an audience wants to come and have me tell them uh, how to feel, or to t- or for me to tell them in improvisation, uh, you know, here's my joke or here's my story. Get it? What they want you to do is come on stage and just be, and then they begin to play twenty questions. Right. Uh, Steve Nekmanovich in Free Play talks about that. He says, the audience always plays 20 questions. I totally agree with that. You walk out on stage and instantly, as audience members, we're all going, who is that? Is that the good guy? Is that the bad guy? Is that, you know, what's going on? Is he playing himself? Is he telling the truth? Is he lying? Right. And that's that process where we begin the storytelling versus me coming on going, okay, I'm the good guy. I'm the hero. Right. Then the audience stops working. Right. So, following up on that, how does lying and or telling the truth work in storytelling or in improv? Um, improv. Well, again, it's, uh, I mean, we're, 
involved in a theatrical undertaking and performance. So what we're trying to do are tell creative stories, and obviously most of those are going to be fictional. However, I think all improv is truth-based. So I might be playing a scene on a space station, um, you know, 80, 90 years in the future, but the human interactions and relationships and things that I'm drawing from in that scene, tensions and, and you know, happiness and sadness and anger and everything else, I can pull from my own life. I can pull from my own interactions. Um, and that's how sometimes the biography gets involved into the, into the fiction. But also in improvisation, we break that fourth wall. So in almost all improvisation, there is interaction directly between the performer and the audience. And in those moments, whether it be a monologue or whether it be just setting up a scene and getting information from the audience to create a story in that interaction, uh, uh, you have to be true. You have to be honest. And um, so the way that I direct and teach improvisation is pretty much any monologue, anytime you're sharing anything in monologue form, it should be based on your life. It should be you know, based on your own experiences. And the reason for that is, again, trying to draw the audience, let the audience tell the story, is that my life is not that much different than the members of the audience. So if I draw upon my own life about the foibles of being alive here in the 21st century, they're going to go, oh, yeah, that's like me. Or, oh, boy, I'm glad I don't have to do that. Or, oh, yeah, I used to do that. You know, they make, they make their own connections to their own biography. And in doing so, then the show becomes a much more personal journey for them. And that's something that we can do in improvisation and need to do in improvisation because, again, it's a product of uh, a process of this exact moment. And then that moment's gone forever. So it's important who's in the room. Right. There's a reason why you're there. And, uh, um, you know, and you should be able to feel and, and feel that energy from the audience and give it to them and get it back. And that all occurs by making these connections, which I think all occur through, uh, you know, telling the truth on stage. I think you've uh, been touching on, on this topic here quite a bit on storytelling, but I, I wanted to ask you about your background. You have a an undergraduate degree in drama, but you have a master's degree in mythological studies and an emphasis in Jungian depth psychology. Mm-hmm. I, I, I presume all of that very much comes together in the in the storytelling part, as you've again been describing to us already. But how did that come to be, and and how how does it continue to play out in your work? And, and do you also apply it outside of your improv uh, work as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, the whole myth and improv connection for me came about because I was traveling around a lot, uh, around the world teaching and directing, and I kept noticing sort of a lot of similar themes and characters um, were popping up all over the world, you know, like archetypes and things, like that. and it was just really powerful for me, and I was just like, wow, here I am in a totally different place, and yet there's this this again. And, uh, and, you know, I came from background of theater and was working in improvisation and felt like I really hadn't had the, you know, developed the, the use of the tools to be able to really explore that in depth. And, um, so then I began thinking about it and I began to think about archetypes and myths and these sort of stories that seem to run through our culture uh, around the world, different cultures around the world. And, uh, and so that's where I thought, well, I'll study myth, and this will be a way to uh, access some of these tools and maybe learn a few more and then be able to apply it to the work that 
I was doing. And it ended up being so much more than that, obviously, because um, it impacted not only the teaching work and the directing work, but also the onstage performing work, as well as the types of stories that we like to do. And, and I love doing myth-based work. And in fact, I use um, improvisation and creativity to access uh, people's personal myths uh, in workshops as well, where it's like, what's the story that's living you, right? And uh, and to play with that imagery, but using the tools of theater, right, to, um, which is all metaphor and, you know, symbol and simile. So, um, so it all plugs in together and it fell into place in a way that, again, I never possibly could have imagined. And, you know, I've been improvising a really long time, more than half my life uh, spent studying and working in improv. Um, and that's kind of how I've lived my life. And so uh, that was a perfect example of like, wow, I had no idea where this was going to go, but, you know, yeah, it paid off in spades. And uh, and so it continues to get, I think it's really, at least for me, the type of work, um, you know, that all my previous experience was sort of building to. Randy, I read um, a little quote that uh, I'd like to read, which says, each of us lives inside a a personal mythology. So you just were speaking to that, but I wonder if you can fill in what that might mean to be living our personal mythology and that, how that, if once we recognize that, how that can affect our lives. Right. Well, some of it is uh, sort of, you know, I, I think that like a, a recurring dream, for instance, uh, that people keep coming back to these sort of touchstone stories for whatever reason, whether it's a, a negative association, whether it's a positive thing, whether it's a comfort food. We all have that favorite story that we keep returning to. Um, and it pops up in places you didn't even think about. And so through theater and improvisation, what I'm trying to do is to get people to go, where is where are the elements of this story in your life, uh, and it might be happening now. It may be something that happened when you were a kid, um, but there's a reason why this this imagery and the story comes up. So oftentimes we'll have uh, what I do is I have them tell their version of the story, which is almost never accurate because they've changed it because it, it's it's been changed by their life. And so I work with their version of the story. So what they choose to emphasize and what they choose to leave out is the material that I'm working with. And then we create these visuals so you can see it. So it might be um, uh, whenever I uh, you know, think about this element of the story, I think of my grandmother, right? And it might be as simple as having somebody on stage playing that person and then someone else just standing there as the grandmother. And then that visual image of like, oh, my grandmother, it's like my grandmother's standing right here all the time. And, you know, and oftentimes people will be like, I never thought of it that way, right? And so just seeing that, well, sometimes something will click or... Uh, they'll get something, or they'll realize that uh, the character they most associate themselves in the story is maybe not accurate, that maybe they are some other character in the story. And all this comes through this this play and creativity and improvisation. And it's meant to be uh, therapeutic, but it's also meant to be light. I mean, it's 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 not heavy-handed. Um, and because again, I think that you know we go to see theater for that very reason, just to sort of see these emotions and things played out on stage. But we know, in the end, you know, there's no real consequences. These are not really these people, you know, killing each other in a Greek drama or whatever a Greek tragedy. Um, and so it ends up being okay. And so I try to 
keep that established as well because then uh, people aren't feeling that pressure like, oh, if I don't change, then it didn't work or, oh, if I get nothing. There's a lot of dead ends in it. I mean, there's a lot of dead ends in improv as well. Um, And so you got to get sort of used to uh, failing. Um, But the successes are huge and big and life-altering. Do you do this work with kids as well? Uh, I have done it with kids. Um, Not so much. Um, And part of that is just sort of uh, my makeup, I guess. Uh, But I am interested, and over the last year or so, um, I've come across a couple people in uh, in the theater company as well as just people I've talked to who are are doing some of beginning this work with kids. So I'm looking to uh, collaborate with a few people um, and do programs. I just think uh, in terms of accessing kids and the way kids are, that they're much better people at sort of handling that than I am. Mm-hmm. Well, um, my personal myths are all they all involve little girls who are pretty obnoxious and <laughs> they like to have their own way like Pippi Longstockings is one of them and so I certainly see that playing out in my life um, that um, I've done a lot of school but she never went to school she, <laughs> she didn't have to she didn't have parents and, but I could see as I went back into the uh, collection of Pippi Longstockings stories and for, to read to my own grandchildren gee um Really, I'm here, you know. It's so it's so telling. Right. So you know, I just really appreciate that that element that you you bring to the conversation. And um, I wonder if you can, because you've mentioned your book, we've mentioned it a couple times, but could you tell us a little more in depth what the book is, um, what's in the book, and so we can lead people there to um, to buy your book and <laughs> for themselves. Yeah, there should be something coming online, I think, soon. Uh, as a plug, um, but, um, the uh, yeah, the book is, is it's it's kind of basic. Uh, it was written for people who had you know were just not necessarily coming to improv for the first time, but were not necessarily written for you know uh, experienced uh, improvisers. So the first part of it is really like here's how um, improv and storytelling kind of works. Here's some narrative things to think about. Here are some games. Here are lots of examples uh, to try to get people uh, to know how it feels. Uh, and then the middle part's kind of here's where we are in improv. Here are some uh, popular forms that are happening, and here's why they, why we're doing them, and here's what I think about them. And then the last part, sort of uh, the future, sort of if you do all this stuff at the beginning of the book and you play all these things in the middle of the book, this might be where we're going. Um, and and what's possible. And for me, that, uh, you know, I'm still toying with that, and I'm thinking about doing some more writing on, on the, the possibilities, because people ask me all the time, like, you know, I've been improvising for more than 30 years, and they say, how do you, you know, why why do you keep improvising? And uh, I go, well, one, it's always different. And I said, and two, I do it for the possibility. I don't feel like we've hit the ceiling yet. I don't feel like we're we're done. And uh, and so I keep trying to push my work and the work of my students and my actors uh towards trying to do more. Uh, and, I mean, it's gotten so sophisticated just in the last, you know, 20, 25 years in terms of the types of stories that we're doing and the types of games that are being played and that sort of expansion. So um, so that, that to me, is touched on in the last part of the book. But I also hope to have some uh, some more stuff out at some point soon. Yeah. 
in the uh, remaining minute or so we have left, uh, what advice do you give to people to uh, improvise in their own lives in in informal and, and personal ways? Right. Well, I often tell people, um, because this is how I live my life, I live in a very animated world, so I'm very open to signs and signals that the world is giving me. And so in a way, I'm, I'm approaching that world uh, from the viewpoint of an improviser. Like I said, I've been improvising uh, more than half my life. And so I, it took me a long time to realize, oh, not everybody thinks this way, just because I basically grew up this way. And uh, and so when I'm out in the world uh, or telling people, when you're out in the world, pay attention to the signals that are coming around you. Go with those offers. Yes and, right? Um, rather than constantly trying to change everything, right? There's a, a thing about uh, improv where they say, you know, you give any improviser a game, the first thing they want to do is change the rules and the rule change to make it safe. And so I tell people in life, don't do that. Go with it. Um, see where it takes you because I certainly didn't have a plan when I started and it's been a, a great reward. Randy, thank you so much for uh, sharing your story with us today on Creativity and Play. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. It's been great. Uh, our guest today is Randy Dixon, who is the Artistic Director of the Seattle-based improv company Unexpected Productions. Our theme music is Kindergarten, composed and performed by Jonathan Batiste. You can listen to this show and previous shows again and find more information about our guests and sign up to be notified about coming shows at creativityandplay.com and find Creativity and Play on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes as well. Creativity and Play is a production of the International Center for Creativity and Imagination in partnership with the National Creativity Network. I'm Steve Goldberg. And I'm Mary Alice Long. Congratulations on the anniversary of Unexpected Productions, Randy, and thank you for being on the show. Oh, thank you very much.